Involve. Solve. Evolve. Welcome to Cloud Crunch, the podcast for any large enterprise planning on moving to or is in the midst of moving to the cloud. Hosted by the cloud computing experts from Second Watch, Ian Willoughby, Chief Architect Cloud Solutions, and Skip Berry, Executive Director of Cloud Enablement. And now, here are your hosts of Cloud Crunch. Welcome back to Cloud Crunch, Season 2. Today, I have a couple guests with me, uh, Rob Whelan with Second Watch and AWS data expert Shonak Chandra. Welcome, guys. Very excited to have both of you here. Great to be here. Absolutely. Last week, we gave you the Cliff Note versions of five strategies you should consider to maximize the value of being in the cloud. Today, in the next few episodes, we're going to examine each of these strategies in more detail, starting with creating competitive advantage from your data. To add to our discussion today, we have a very special guest, Chinook Chandra from AWS. And I want to give a little bit of uh, your background to the audience so that, that we know. So I'm going to read my little canned speech here. Chinook is a senior solution architect specialized in data and analytics with AWS. He has over 15 years of experience in designing and building scalable and secure data-like data warehouse solutions. Chinook helps customers build data strategy from proof of concept to the final architecture design using big data and AI and ML technologies. He is an advocate of data lake and machine learning and have written several blogs and GitHub codes in the data area. Welcome again to the show. So we want to get into this today, and I'm really excited about both of you being here. Rob, Rob is our practice manager of our data analytics and big data practice and uh, so this is going to be great. So you all have tremendous experience in this area, and this is this is going to be really fun. So why don't we go ahead and open it up, Rob? I think you've got some questions, so uh, let's just jump right in. Sounds good. Ian, thank you. And Shonak, so great to be with you again. We've worked together on, on so many projects. You've always been so accessible and, and so knowledgeable. But let's get right to it. When it comes to Redshift, we want to use it to analyze large amounts of data, whether just querying and or, or visualizing a dashboard. So what are some tips you have for us to minimize the time between loading data into the Redshift cluster and visualizing data? First of all, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Ian. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talking to you and share some of my best practices and my experience that I have had with a lot of customers and partners while talking to them about data warehouse best practices Redshift to be very specific, but any AWS data technologies uh, just in general. So when it comes to data visualizations and data warehousing using Amazon Redshift, uh, the very first and most common approach of data ingestion point is Amazon S3. That's the de facto standard for data ingestion or landing zone, if we will, for data, you know, bringing in from your CSV or Excel file, or maybe data coming from traditional RDBMS databases. So S3 being in the first you know, landing and landing zone uh, ingestion point. And the, the reason for S3 being so prominent for data loading is it improves your object transfer from S3 into Amazon Redshift, uh, improve your S3 read throughput, um, as well as you maximize your parallelism, which Redshift is very good at. It also improves um, your processing 
especially around the data ingestion perspective, if you can spread out the files in Amazon S3 in multiple objects. When we talk about multiple objects, you can think it of as you know, put, putting multiple files, whether it's a CSV or any other kind of text delimited file, or maybe it could be JSON file, as well as more advanced you know, columnar formatted files like you know, Parquet, ORC, so you can think of, think it of as uploading you know all of these files of similar you know schema structure into a folder if you will and this folder we call it in Amazon S3 as prefix so you upload all of these files in Amazon prefix uh, Amazon S3 prefix and then run through a glue crawler which is AWS glue service to recognize the format of the data instead of you telling you know, what the data structure look like, what are the different columns and data types, you let Amazon Glue to discover your data. And that makes the next step, which is the data loading, you know, much more you know, simplified. So that's, that's something that we really, really talk our you know, customer or partners that, hey, make your files spread across you know, as many files as possible instead of creating just one single file, one single you know, large file. Um, which may get bottlenecked to load your data into Amazon S3 and may not utilize the Redshift parallel processing. So what happens if you try to load data into Redshift without having uh, crawled it first? So if you, if you don't crawl through Amazon AWS Glue, what you, could, you could spend some time, especially if the data or the file is coming from your provider, which you are not aware of the structure and it would be really really painful if the file structure is not something that you can read which is essentially any kind of columnar structure like you know like uh, not character coded files such as parquet and ORC there's no point for you to understand the structure and if it is provided by a third party you don't know what the columns are what are the different data types are and that's when in AWS glue crawler comes really really handy for you or for the glue crawler to discover the data structure behind the file. So if you don't have the glue crawler, you need to know the column types, the columns, the schema of your data, and you need to manually create the table in Amazon Redshift and then load the data from those files into Amazon Redshift. That's great. Now, it's you've really kind of honed in on two services be, before you get to Redshift. One is going to be S3, which... Amazing to me how much it keeps improving every year. I mean, it's object store, right? And you would always think, how does it get any better? Seems to be keep getting faster, more capabilities, those types of things. So very excited about that. And I cannot wait to learn what's uh, coming out at reInvent on that one as well. Every year, there's a little bit of a surprise. And glue. So let's talk about a couple of things. One is how hard it is to use these services. So because what, what I hear is that you really want to split these files up. You want to prefix them. Is that difficult? Is there a strategy? You know, kind of where can people go for best practices with that? And secondly, how hard is glue to learn? You know, particularly, I guess this is just the crawler side because there's a lot of capabilities inside of glue as well. And some of the pricing models associated with that. That's a good question. So in terms of ease of use, you know, everybody is familiar with Amazon S3, right? So you could upload, you can log into AWS console Yep. First service, see. right? First yep. service AWS launched. That's the first service and it's object storage. So you don't have to really think about you know, structuring your folder. You just upload the file and it will it will be placed somewhere in uh, Amazon S3. 
and you can download the file. You can even launch a website, a static website using Amazon S3. But to to this point and to this regards, this has been really, really helpful or really, really easy to upload the file in S3. You just need to have uh, AWS Management Console access, or you could upload the files through CLI or API. There's a lot of you know, options out there if you want to do that programmatically, right? Um, and in terms of AWS Group Crawler, w- one of the benefits of the Group Crawler is it, it can recognize the format, and it can recognize formats of various different types. For example, you know, if it is a CSV file, yep, it will it will understand you know out of the box that this is a CSV file and it will ignore the first column. Typically that's the case for a CSV file, which is the header file or header row. Um, and read the header row and then recognize the column names from there. Um, if it is any other format, such as a text delimited file with a you know tab delimiter, right? It will also recognize that start of the box. And more more unstructured or semi-structured data such as you know parquet or ORC or JSON, it can do the, do, do that job seamlessly. So that's 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 really really easy. And for for a customer or for a user, um, you just log into AWS Glue, create a Glue crawler specifying the location of your S3 object, and off you go. Um, you just provide a name of the database that it will register in your AWS Glue catalog, and run the crawler, and it will recognize the structure and schema and register your table in AWS Glue Data Catalog. And once it is in Glue Data Catalog, you can bring in your host of services to to use your SQL skill to query that data, whether it's in Amazon Athena, whether AWS Glue Spectrum, EMR, or QuickSight. Oh, that's great. Gives you a lot of flexibility there. So there are different node types and things along those lines. There's just different ways to kind of launch the, a Redshift cluster. And... Can you tell us about, well, obviously there's different node types, but we're going to hone in on an RA3 here. So what are some of the recommended patterns of using an RA3 node type compared to other cloud data warehouses? Sure. Um, I think we need to understand why RA3 came in the first place. And one of the things that our product team, Redshift team, um, recognized talking to different customers that a lot of the customers are trying to modernize their existing data warehouse. What we have experienced talking to these customers that they host a large volume of data, uh, usually in the form of fact tables, that does not get queried that often. And that constitutes a huge volume of their storage um, in, in their data warehouse, which could contribute to somewhere between you know, 60 to 90% um, of that volume of data. And one of the things that we in Redshift that we provided is Spectrum. So if you have in a lot of these historical data that you don't query that frequently, just offload that data into Spectrum. But there are some some overhead associated with maintaining and managing Spectrum. For example, you need to create an external schema. You need to offload the data into S3. You need to partition it and create a view, union all view, to be able for your end users or business users to query the data seamlessly, whether it's a historical data or you know more current data or hot data as we call it. So that's when you know R3 you know comes into picture and our our service team and our product engineering team you know thought outside the box and came up with a novel solution, which is a new instance type, which is called R3. Great. So once you're using these these nodes. And uh, you've got a lot of people using your Redshift cluster. Um, my, my question 
Next question is around concurrency and, and how do you keep things efficient? Basically, when we talk to customers, it's pretty common for them to ask how to reduce sort of query wait times. And they sense that there's getting, there's collision between multiple parties using the cluster. We always tell them to just, you know, start, let's start by taking a look at the uh, workload management queues. We generally say, Hey, they should have at least three or four different ones. Just one is reserved for an admin. But what else? Do you have any other thoughts beyond workload management for, for, you know, more advanced ways to manage concurrency? Yeah, so let me let me go to that point, but let me finish up our thought on the R3 node type. Uh, I think we we, we I just mentioned about where, why R3 came down in the first place and what are the different patterns that we have been seeing our customers are using, especially for the ones where they had been already using Amazon Redshift in one of the legacy formats, uh, instance types, which is, you know, DS2 and DC2. And for for the customers who are already running on DS2 instance types, um, it's been a natural choice for them to move to R3 because there's nothing to lose there. R3 runs on SSD, um, which DS2, the previous generation, was hard drive. So obviously you get a you know, much higher IO throughput there. And and an R3 comes with you know 64 terabyte depth sheet managed storage, which is you know quite a, quite a large amount of storage. The other benefit with R3 is customer does not need to pay for the additional storage uh, that it comes with your, uh, each node, which is 64 terabyte per node. They they are only charged or billed for the amount of storage that they occupy. So let's say the customer has you know 20 terabytes of uh, of active space, data space, and they have two two node in R3 cluster. They're not paying for the 128 terabyte of storage. Instead, they're paying only for the you know, 20 terabyte storage. And what benefit this brings is if their their performance gets in a bottleneck, for example, they have you know reached the cap of CPU utilization, they can add additional node without paying for additional you know storage. That's completely separate. So um, so that's the that's the one sort of uh, you know, difference from the legacy instance types, which is DS2 and DC2. When it comes to DC2 customers, like the customers has been already running on DC2 instance type and have a very steady, you know, CPU utilization, which probably under, you know, 50 CPU, CPU utilization most of the time. What we have found it, uh, for them, it's best uh, to move to R3 as a cost-saving measure. Obviously, you know, DC2 is run by SSD, R3 is run by SSD. Um, so there's not really you know much benefit if you move to R3 from DC2, but if your CPU utilization is below you know 50 percent, maybe maybe there's a good possibility for you to make some cost saving moving on to R3. However, if you uh, have a CPU utilization um, you know at the higher side, close to let's say 80 or 90 percent most of the time, it does not make sense for you to move to R3 and um, require you to consider some other factors there. Now, uh, coming back to your original question on, you know, auto WLM or WLM for measurement or best practices for performance under heavy concurrency. What we have we have seen, auto WLM is suitable for new customers who are, you know, new user of Amazon Redshift. They haven't used Amazon Redshift before. Maybe they haven't used any kind of data warehouse before, Right. Um, with very little knowledge on their workload types, whether it's a ETL, ELT heavy, or it's a mostly you know read-only queries like you know BI visualizations and stuffs, 
Um, after certain days um, of setting up the auto WLM, they, they create a priority queues. And the priority queues are a way for making certain kind of workloads to get you know, prioritized before other workloads. Because in auto WLM, you have just one you know, flat out you know, slots, right? You do not have any, any, any slots that you can create on your own. Instead, AWS or Amazon Redshift creates those slots for you. Um, and after you know, running your data warehouse for a certain time, um, customers tend to create certain priority queues because they see there's a, there's a concurrency issues across different workload types, whether it's ELT and BI, and certain processes such as BI queries you know, started to struggle there because there's a lot of ETL jobs running. And at that point, they set out a priority queue. And these priority queues, obviously, as the name suggests, you know, certain queues uh, get more prioritized over other queues. And in this particular case, if you know BI queries are struggling because of you know heavy ETL processes, um, as and when the BI queries you know come in, they will get prioritized. Uh, and the biggest advantage of Redshift to efficiently use the cluster under heavy concurrency is the use of concurrency scaling, which is a feature that we launched in around I think 2019 that has been very effectively being used by a lot of our customers. And the benefit of concurrency scaling is it's really, really applicable when you have, you know, kind of very, you know, you know spiky workload, but the spiky workload does not, you know, stay for a longer period of time, or maybe it's, uh, you know, one hour, a couple of hours a week or month. So it's been really effective for customers with the concurrency scaling usage uh, for, you know, heavy concurrency workload. So how does that uh, work on concurrency scaling? Is that just an option you tick and it and it sort of works for you? And what's happening behind the scenes? Sure. So concurrency scaling does create a brand new cluster behind the scene without you knowing that the cluster needs to be launched, right? So you set up a concurrency scaling in your main cluster um, as part of the WLM setup. And and Redshift will determine when to launch the this parallel transient cluster that as we call it, uh, which is the concurrency scaling cluster. It will launch the concurrency scaling cluster. It will before launching the cluster, it will take a quick quick snapshot of your current workload, and it will launch the concurrency scaling cluster for the tables that these queries, which are you know waiting for queue slots, they will those tables are getting loaded into your concurrency scaling cluster and your query will get um, you know, queried from that concurrency scaling cluster instead of the main cluster. So it's completely transparent. As an end user, you would not see you know, when concurrency scaling cluster is created uh, as long as you are running the query. But as an administrator or if you have access to your AWS management console, there's a plenty of metrics that you can watch on AWS Redshift, Amazon Redshift, um, console or those are available as your CloudWatch metrics so that you can create your own dashboard or events and kind of monitor, set up a monitoring um, job to do auditing or, you know, set out your administrator that there are some usage, you know, spike happening and you may need to look at it, right? So for uh, handling concurrency, uh, the recommendation is uh, be sure to have uh, workload management queues set up that makes sense for your usage patterns. And also look at concurrency scaling, which uh, which is actually interesting that it's the concurrency benefit is 
is per queue, right? It's not like all across the entire cluster. Is it per queue? Yeah. So right now, the concurrency scaling is applicable to read-only queries. So it's not applicable for ETL queries. Um, so that means if you are running any any ETL queries, I mean, obviously, those will not be eligible for concurrency scaling. But at the same time, if you're running any read-only queries or BI queries, that would require to rewrite your queries behind the scene by Redshift uh, in a certain format that would otherwise um, execute much faster. For, for example, if it requires to create a temp table, right? So those are also not going to be eligible for concurrency scaling. And in, in other words, if you have multiple you know, queues set up, um, those are quite independent of concurrency scaling. As long as they are, your queries are eligible and your queue has been set up for concurrency scaling, you have an option for each queue. You can set the uh, queue as concurrency scaling eligible or not. That's uh, like administrator level setup that you set up at the WLM. So once a queue is eligible, or you have set up the queue for eligible for concurrency scaling, and a query in that queue is eligible, then it will it will be leveraging the concurrency scaling. So we have seen like most of the concurrency scaling uh, queries are you know BI queries, you know read only queries, you know mostly using you know select queries and um, simple select queries. If it if it is a very complicated select queries involving creation of um, you know temp tables um, just to simplify the query processing, it will not be eligible for concurrency scaling. But most of the time. Um, Concurrency scaling kicks off for BI queries. And we have seen that customers, almost 97 to 98% of the customers do not pay any additional fees for concurrency scaling because you get a one-hour credit of your main cluster usage every day uh, free of cost. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. I, I started using Redshift a little over five years ago, and it is absolutely amazing how, how much, it, much it's progressed, and particularly in the uh, workload management side. I was talking to a friend of mine at a customer and uh, one of the nice things about all this setup too is that now you can put people who don't understand how to do good queries into a particular queue and it protects everybody else. So uh, it, it really does protect that. That's, you know, we don't talk about that feature a whole lot, but you can put kind of people that don't really understand how to query data, put them over there and they can kind of isolate themselves and not impact the whole organization. So that's until they learn how to, to do it much better. So thank you for sharing all that. So you've got a bunch of different kind of things going on here. When we talk about Postgres, Athena, and other CSP data warehouses, they they all support semi-structured data, things like structs, maps, and arrays. What is AWS's recommended pattern on how to use Redshift for such data structures? Redshift does support semi-structured data as such, uh, such as structs, map, and arrays, as you mentioned, only through the external table. But before going into that, let me tell you that local tables also does support JSON formatted, you know, structured data as a source. And that's, that's, that support is done through the copy command, which is the common way to load data into Redshift local table uh, instead of external table, which is pretty much in S3. Uh, you don't require to load data, but in copy command, you load the data into Amazon Redshift local storage, whether it's a HDD hard drive or, you know, SSD power drive. You can also have a JSON column in a table. For example, if you have a you know ten different columns, timestamp, you know source, and all those things, and one particular column of data contains uh, a JSON structure data set. For example, if it's a like you know sparse kind of metric, and you capture that in a JSON uh, in a structure, um, 
that can be part of your table column as well. And it can be parsed using JSON functions, that particular column, which is containing the JSON data. It can be parsed using JSON functions like JSON extract array element text or JSON extract path text. Now, let's talk about the semi-structured data, which is applicable for data generated by you know, telemetric systems, such as server logs. Sometimes also like gaming platforms or applications generate those kind of data. Click streams, very common way to generate this kind of data. And they generate those data in an enormous volume with a sporadic frequency. And this kind of data are common to be presented in JSON format most of the time, which consists of you know the structures that you mentioned, like struct, array, and map kind of data. Redshift supports ingest um, of these kind of data via the spectrum table. So when when is when it is accepted um, or used through the spectrum and external table. Um, there, there could be different forms of the data. Like if it is an instruct form, if it is a struct form, then Redshift does support accessing those struct column using a dot notation. For example, if you have a customer table, for example, and customer has you know many different um, you know orders placed by the customer, and you want to represent all of those different orders in a JSON uh, JSON structure, and some orders might have certain columns. Some some orders might not have those columns, so it's very common to represent those in orders data per customer in 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 JSON structure. And some customers have you know no order. Some customers have you know one or two orders. Some customers have hundreds of orders. They are well suited for representing in JSON in terms of array, right? And the way that external table or spectrum can query those data is very simple. You do not have to represent, you know, those structure ahead of the time. Instead, you create a customer table um, in external schema and and start querying the data using regular JSON or regular, you know, SQL syntax. And it's very simple. Um, all the substructure, all the, you know, structure behind the main, um, main you know, JSON structure just access those to the dot notation. You just create um, under your in your select query, use the the, the table name in you know, a from clause and any substructure within that within that JSON, use it as an alias and then access the substructure within dot notation. So that's as simple as that. So if if you have in you know, a more complex structure like array, as I mentioned earlier, if you have multiple in orders per customer, and you want to capture all the customers, even if the customer has an order or customer has multiple orders, you could probably use inner joins, for example, um, if you want to capture all the orders for customers who has orders. So you can use the inner joins using the JSON data the same way the dot notation works. Um, and if you want to have capture all the customers, even if they don't have any uh, orders, you can use the left join. It's the very common a use case for inner joint principles, right? So those, all those kind of you know left joints, inner joints, outer joints um, can be applied on JSON structured and uh, an array kind of data. So yeah, so we could we we do see um, you know customers using external tables, especially with the data coming from telemetric systems or you know gaming systems to access those data from uh, from external table. That's great. So yeah, we, we want to kind of explore some technical tips to better understand the nuances of locking, blocking, and deadlock deadlock operations in Redshift, which can have performance ramifications. What can you tell us, kind of like you know, high level? What can we do to kind of make sure we don't get into any bad situations with those things? 
Sure. Um, I think the good point is Redshift has been very friendly in terms of locking. Uh, if you compare with any other RDBMS where the table locks or the row locks are very common, Redshift does give you a lot of flexibility and um, and it does apply locks behind the scene without letting you know that there's a, some lock happening because it's so super fast and uh, immutable you know, data storage or block storage. So Amazon Redshift allows tables to be read while they are incrementally being loaded or modified. Um, queries simply see the latest committed version, which we call you know, snapshot of the data, rather than waiting for the next version to be committed. Some applications require not only concurrent querying and loading, but also the ability to write to multiple tables or the same table concurrently. And this mechanism by which Redshift allows concurrent writing into a single table, we call it serializable isolation which essentially preserves the illusion that a transaction running against a table is the only transaction that is running against that table. And it could also lead to periodic deadlock situation for concurrent write transactions. Whenever a transaction involves updates of more than one table, there's always the possibility of concurrently running transactions becoming deadlock when they both try to write to the same table or same set of tables. And a transaction releases all of its table locks um, at once when it either commits or rollbacks. It does not relinquish locks one at a time. For example, suppose there is there are a set of transactions uh, T1 and T2 start at roughly the same time. If T1 starts writing to a table A and T2 starts writing to table B, both transactions can proceed without conflict. However, if T1 finishes writing to table A and needs to start writing to table B, it will not be able to do because T2 still holds a lock on B. It's still writing on table B. Conversely, if T2 finishes writing to table B and needs to start writing to table A, it will not be able to proceed either because T1 still holds a lock on A. Because neither transaction can release its lock until all its write operations committed, neither transaction can proceed. So that's kind of very common kind of deadlock situation that may happen. And it's one of the you know, worst practice you could involve in your you know, ETL processing. So how do you avoid this kind of deadlock? You need to schedule concurrent write operations very carefully. Um, you should always update tables in the same order in transactions. And if specifying locks, lock tables in the same order before you perform any DML operations. And there are several ways that you can find uh, locking happens uh, at a transaction level and which tables are you know, creating locks, which tables are you know, being blocked for you know, being uh, a lock has been applied on the table. You can identify those locks on a table and type of locks by session following tables. Um, the tables that are needed to be queried are SVB transactions and PG locks. From these tables, you can find lock mode, you know, blocking PID, table ID, and granted. Um, if granted column is false, it means that a transaction in another session is holding the lock. And if that's the case, you don't have any other choice because everything is in deadlock, um, you may end up you know, terminating the session. And for terminating the session, you use PG terminate backend with the PID. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. If everything you know gets uh, you know blocked, uh, nobody is moving. Uh, that's the ultimate step you need to take. Great, great. Well, yeah, we've covered a lot today, and I, I do encourage our our listeners if you have looked at Redshift in the past, maybe two three years ago, look at it again. It is really really evolved 
and uh, it is solving a lot of data warehousing uh, situations. It is an extremely vibrant product, I would say, and particularly the way it auto-tunes on the back end with the workload management and all those types of things. It just keeps getting smarter and easier to use. So before we go, I want to ask both Rob and Chinook, what is the best way for somebody who's interested in learning more about Redshift? How can they get started in their knowledge? Uh, I'll, I'll try that. So to get started with Redshift, you need two things. You need uh, a data set and you need uh, a goal for what you want to accomplish with that data set. And it's um, from there, it's very simple. And that data set, you know, really the bigger, the better. And in terms of your analysis, just be open-minded as to what you can find in that data set. I think if you just have a data set, but no goal, then uh, you could, you know, you're not going to get across the finish line. If you have a goal, but no data set, obviously you can't get going. So those two things together uh, with Redshift will will be a fantastic way to get started. Sure. And yeah, I, I agree that you have to have the use case, right? And Redshift being the fastest, you know, data warehouse product on the cloud, you can leverage your your data analysis much faster if you have, you know, tens of, you know, gigabytes of data, um, or if you have, you know, hundreds of terabyte or even petabyte scale of data, you can use, you know, R3 cluster node type if you have big data sets. So if you want to experiment, you can get started by launching a DC2 or DS2 instance type. We don't encourage to use DS2 anymore, but you can get started with DC2 and start loading the data uh, from S3 right away uh, or, the thousands of other ETL tools if you are bringing data from, uh, you know, RDBMS databases. And uh, you can bring in, you know, QuickSight um, if you want to quickly analyze the data. Um, QuickSight has data discovery or Redshift discovery option. Um, if it is in the same account, it will quickly, you know, identify your Redshift cluster and it will, you know, start importing your data sets from the tables that you want to log um, or analyze the data. And uh, even if you want to use in the Jupyter Notebook, certain like a lot of ML users nowadays are very familiar with, you know, visualizing and analyzing data using Jupyter Notebook because you have, you know, a lot many different, you know, uh, packages that you can use to to do a lot of visuals. So even now we do have a Redshift Data API, um, which is very flexible way to plug in your Jupyter Notebook to Redshift cluster. You don't need any driver. You do not need any networking setup like security groups or even manage any credential. You can unload the data in your S3 and then load into Pandas data frame, or you can directly um, load into your Pandas data frame from your Redshift cluster. So that's very flexible. Great. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Shonuk. And th- thanks again for joining us, Rob. It's uh, always good to see your smiling face as well. Next week, we'll look at the second strategy to increasing your cloud's value, increasing application development with DevOps. Thanks again for joining us. And if you have any feedback or comments, we welcome them. Please email us at cloudcrunch at secondwatch.com. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Cloud Crunch with Ian Willoughby and Skip Berry. For more information, check out the blog, secondwatch.com slash company slash blog, or reach out to Second Watch on Twitter. 